Welcome to Season 8 of Centennial College Leadership Vibe Podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we will be talking with David Ipiam on his journey to leadership. David is the Dean of Students here at Centennial College. He is also an entrepreneur running his own podcast, Student Success Exchange, and a relationship coaching service with his wife on Relationship zen.ca David thank you for taking the time to discuss your leadership and entrepreneurship journey so that it can inspire others before we start I just want to say welcome and thank you to our amazing guest David APM on behalf of myself and my co-host Jackie as well as the leadership academy team for making time for us out of your busy schedule to discuss your leadership journey and share your experiences here on the Leadership by podcast. So David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here at Centennial College? Thanks for having me. And uh, it's really exciting to uh, be a part of this podcast focused on Centennial student leadership and how we can grow more leaders and leaders within. So for, for myself, specifically my role here at Centennial, I'm serving currently as the Dean of Students. And what that means is I have functional oversight over areas related to student life, engagement, and development. So I get to support all the teams to the best of my ability and co-creating kind of like those conditions where when students can come in, they can experience this transformative learning from a personal career and academic success perspective. So students might know the teams within this portfolio as student life and transition, global experiences, advising, international student services, and the, the folks whom they go to who are maybe not teaching in the classrooms or associated with specific schools, but are there to support them in system navigation, sometimes conduct cases, case management, athletics and recreation. So those are kind of, those are the teams, if I were to name them, that I get to support on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, we work with so many partners at the college to realize that mission of educating students for career success and transforming lives and communities through learning. That's the vision of the college. And the first thing I gave was the mission of the college. So nothing we do is without the whole community and with students. Wow, you have such a big role, so much things to do, um, and so many uh, areas where you where you can show like your leadership and showcase that. Uh, how do you define leadership, and what does it really mean to you? Yeah, thank you. The portfolio is vast and deep, and is only possible with just all the caring folks like you, Jackie Mabrat, and Linda, who you work with, and all the all the individuals who make up the portfolio. So for me, leadership is highly relational. And it's about creating, building, creating conditions for more leadership to occur. So for people to step into their leadership, I kind of, if I were to split it up in two, one definition of leadership for me is around self-leadership, leading without a title, focusing on being inspired in order to lead with in inspirational ways, and then to create positive impact. So I get a lot of that learning from early exposure to Robin Sharma's work. Robin Sharma is a leadership educator and coach, author of the leader who had no title, the monk who sold his Ferrari, 5am club. And he, he talks a lot about leading without a title and, and the three eyes, the, the responsibilities of humans. So if you can breathe, you can lead and leadership is not really is not reliant on your title, your the money in your bank account, your status, your power. So this is something that really resonated with me from a, a young age. And it's really about the, the first one I was talking about inspired. And I think that's key, because a lot of times we talk about inspiring others. 
But I think that needs to come from a place of responsibility to be inspired. And so it's self-leaders take a look at what they consume, the media they consume, the people they hang out with, the books they read, the content they consume, the routines they have, the habits they develop, what they eat, how they sleep in order to be come from a place of inspiration, right? So there's this responsibility in self-leadership to be inspired. And sure, there's a lot of actions one can do themselves to do that. It, it, but I certainly recognize that it's in community. Um, so this idea of filling one's cup and modeling the way, as, as you might learn about in other leadership models, like the Kuzis and Posner model, modeling the way. One cannot model the way if one is feeling uninspired, unmotivated, unhealthy, right? So yes, you can be facing challenges and we all do. And at the, so it's about thinking about how we can build ourselves up with the support in community, recognizing that there are barriers to that, but like looking at what we can control and what we can influence to be inspired in order to then inspire others to become, to step up and to create the lives that they wish to, to create in service of creating a positive impact. So that's the inspired, inspiring and then positive impact. There's, there's a lot of times I talk about leadership as an action. The self-leadership is a lot about if I just have knowledge on how to inspire and to be inspired, that is inert. It doesn't do anything, right? It's the knowledge and action. It's getting on this call like you're doing and asking the tough questions, trying to disseminate knowledge on leadership from your various conversations. That's an act of leadership. It's getting up in the morning and giving yourself some time to ground yourself before coming into the day. It's recognizing as one of you did earlier about that the sun is coming through. And even though I'm feeling cold, the sun energizes me. It's these little things and also sometimes big things that can lead to what I'm calling as self-leadership and leaving, leading without a title. I also started by saying that it's highly relational. It's in service of others. It's about creating more leadership. So that's a self-leadership. And then I can go into how I kind of view positional leadership or leadership in an organization or a community. But uh, I thought I'd just stop there in case there's anything you want me to expand on or question. Uh, yeah, like we, uh, can you, that, that was our next question, like uh, to tell us about your uh, professional like leadership journey. Uh, so you can expand on your professional leadership journey, how you got to where you are and what it means to be a leader within like an organization as well. Yeah. Okay. So I'll start, I'll start there just so, cause I'll, I'll, I'll talk about my journey probably through these terms. I, one of the, um, when I started becoming a formal student of leadership, it, I was in um, my last year of university, I ended up fifth year. So normally uh, I would have graduated in four years, but uh, I, I learned through academic advising that I was missing a credit. <laughs> Actually, I was, I was over in credits, but I was missing a specific class I was supposed to take in my third year, but didn't realize that's on, that's my bad. And so I stayed for an extra year and it was great because, um, I mean, in the moment I wasn't happy about it. But it turned out to be great, as with lots of things in life, a great or lessons learned, you know, where in that fifth year, I had, I was able to work as a leadership educator formally in, as a, in a student role that then translated into a part-time, well, actually it was like a 30, sorry, it was a full-time, but temporary role. So for like eight, nine months to build a leadership program, renew the leadership program and ground it in what is known as the social change model of leadership. I've really adopted, like, I felt like when I read, you know, sometimes when you read something, you're like, wow, this put into words something that I feel mm -hmm. and believe in. And so the SEM did that for me, the social change model of leadership and it and views leadership as a purposeful. So leadership is for a purpose and that positive impact collaborative. It's a process between people. It's not about a person. So I talked about self-leadership as actions you could do in relation to others. Now I'm talking about leadership within groups. It's values driven. It's about living, being, doing, as opposed to one's title or position as well. It believes that leadership is concerned with effective change on, on behalf of others, with others, in fact, 
and society. And so they define it come of as and team. They define leadership as a relational process of people together attempting to accomplish change or make a difference to benefit the common good. So if I relate that to my work in student affairs and my professional journey, my leadership is an expression of a relational process of people like us on the student life engagement development team, or like my academic colleagues or uh, any peer that I work with attempting to create conditions and make a difference to uh, support student development, learning and engagement, right? So that's, that's kind of like how I, I view the work I do. Um, to answer the, the first part of your question, my professional journey started, I think I have to ground it with my personal journey. And my parents immigrated from uh, the, the island, tropical island of Mauritius, part of the African continent. So I was made in, made in Mauritius, but I was born here. I, I went to school and uh, started off really, really shy and anxious all the way up to my preteens. So extremely shy, anxious to the point of not being able to participate in class, talk to talk in any kind of semi or public forum. I had to recite, you know, at the time I was growing up, you had to recite poems sometimes or do some, even like read a paragraph to demonstrate that you can read out loud. And so I had to do that during the recess when everybody was away one-on-one -on -one with the teacher. Uh, and I'm thankful for the teachers for accommodating me. And what happened is I had, you know, parents, thankfully, and teachers who pushed me, uh, I want to say pushed me and gradually influenced me, but first pushed me in a good way to get involved in sports and different hobbies. And so that gradually exposed me to opportunities to take risks and challenges and build confidence in myself. There was always this like challenge and support that now we know, in now I know as being a student affairs professional, there's like actual theories around this, around adult development, but there was always this like on the cusp of challenge where I would get crushed and feel very anxious, but then associated supports to kind of balance out that challenge and help me move through. And I remember some of my earliest professional, paraprofessional or volunteer, because I stand uh, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, but also on these buildup of experiences. Yes, I'm Dean of Students today, but there's just so many experiences that built it up. And the earliest ones were uh, being appointed as a peer mediator in my uh, junior high school. So where I would get to volunteer to mediate conflicts with people. I dove deep into summer sports camps as a counselor and coach martial arts coach. I've been a martial arts coach for 20 plus years. And then finally, in my final high school year, I took on this role as student trustee representing the entire southwestern uh, of Ontario's francophone student population in francophone schools, public schools, I should say francophone public schools. And that was huge. Like I was traveling to Ottawa to lobby. I was going to downtown hotels to do conferences and host them. And that was like a crash course in quote unquote adult job at the age of 16, 17. And so that was an early exposure to what positional leadership and community leadership could look like. And honestly, I was, though we accomplished so much, I was flying by the seat of my pants. <laughs> then when I went to university, I was pretty burnt out after that intensive high school year. Didn't want to participate in anything. Didn't want to do anything because I was, I was actually burnt out. Sorry. I was, I was, I was having symptoms of burnout. I wasn't clinically burnt out, but I was having symptoms of burnout exhaustion. But again, I met some fun, good people in university and they encouraged me to join initiatives that I cared about that would support others to thrive on the university campus. And that was always a draw for me, right? It's like, where can my skill set support others and, and work with others to thrive, right? And so that's how I kind of started getting into student affairs. As you can see from my history, peer mediation, sports camps, uh, martial arts coach, student trustee, none of that is really dissimilar to student affairs. I didn't know about student affairs. So then fast forward, I'll just kind of fast forward throughout the whole university. I did student government and, and that kind of thing. 
I was a commuter student, but going back to that first role I had in leadership education, I, I kind of just asked my boss, like, how do you do what you do? Right. And he explained to me like, Hey, there's a, at the time, uh, and there still is right now, but a master, he recommended a master's program in student affairs or higher education. And so I pursued that route. I was originally going for law school, uh, actually mediation. I was originally going for law school. Then I decided to do mediation. Then I decided to do student affairs. I did do a, a certificate in mediation, but then I, I, I loved the student affairs masters. I just loved it. And I loved the work I was doing in student affairs. So I stayed here working through the uh, various positions in, in student leadership and conduct case management, international student services, broad-based services, specialized services, career education development, service excellence. I'm probably missing some. Joined Centennial on February, 2021. And it's been a challenging, fun, and great experience so far. And, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the values, the values at Centennial and, and, and at York that, that I had before, but I was a student there and it was time, I was a student there and I worked there for 10 years. The change to Centennial has been, again, a challenging and fun and Centennial values just really are so strong and the, the community here is really focused on that, that mission and the vision of transforming lives and communities through learning. So it's been a super experience so far. Long answer. But no, again, that, happy to dive in. Yeah, that's very good. Like, speaking to you, I wouldn't think of you had like any challenges of public speaking or like like scared to do it. But it's nice that you shared that part of yourself with us. And tell us more about like how the challenges like you experienced like growing up or while in school. How did they like shape and form like the leadership you are today? Like the leader you are today? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think I, I, I grew up being... So my parents had, uh, I would say like healthy, high expectations, you know, they weren't, if I got uh, a decent grade, uh, you know, 75% and above, it wasn't like, where's the 90, you know, it was more about being well-rounded. Now the, 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 every strength has a, has a push to the limit can become a weakness or a risk. So this message of being well-rounded was interesting because then that meant that, um, the way it worked out and I enjoyed it at the time you know, was every evening or weekend, I was involved in some kind of community program, whether it's like keyboarding or swimming or whatever, tutoring. And as much as it helped me grow, because again, I had that strong anxiety and uh, at the beginning, I, I think that I carried it through life and, and almost interpret it as like um, needing to sprint through life instead of seeing life as more of an adventure akin to climbing a vast mountain. And I'll explain that. So what I'm learning and what I've learned is through challenges of, I, I explained like exhaustion. I think I've, I've experienced that two or three times now because you know, they say life is a marathon, not a sprint. I, I kind of partially agree. I also don't agree that it's a marathon. Like, yes, it, it, it's a marathon in the sense of it's not a sprint, but there are periods where you sprint. And then there are periods where you kind of coast and there are periods where you maintain a bit of a consistent pace as a marathoner, but I actually see it as like a climbing a vast mountain where I, there, again, there are periods where I have to climb hard. And then where I can pause and look at the scenery, look down, look around, meet people, look at the nature, right? And then take a different pace or encounter a barrier and walk around and find different ways to continue on the journey or up this mountain. And, and when I say up, it doesn't have to be up. It can be through a valley too. I'm just picking a mountain because I that's just how I relate to, to my life. Like I, I like the idea of every day, every year, I'm changing and I'm in a sense, uh, adopting, integrating learning, trying to become a, a better person, a better citizen of the world. So I, I kind of prefer the analogy of a mountain, <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah, the first challenge is, was mindset, right? Mindset and, and health, realizing that my energy is limited. 
I can't do everything. So that's the first one. The, the second one is kind of related is seeing life as nonlinear, seeing life more as a cycle, cyclical processes, right? And, and knowing and acknowledging that there are seasons in life. There's a summer, there's a winter, there's a spring, there's a fall, especially where we live, but also in my days and in my weeks and in my years that I can have, I don't have to be operating at 110% every minute of the day. Uh, even right now, like, I, as you know, I'm, I'm under the weather right now. Uh, I hope I'm coming across like sensical, but I, I, I know that I have to be gentle with myself and compassionate that maybe I can't fire on all cylinders today because uh, I need to devote some of my attention to healing, but I also enjoy this conversation. So how can both be true and, and leave space for the healing and this great conversation with, with you, Jackie and Nabrat. So uh, seasons versus constants. I think I had a propensity to see myself as a bit more like a machine before just work harder. You know, I think at some point I was even trying to fit more into like my sleep. Okay. Well, how can I birth these business ideas in my sleep and like journal, you know? And then I realized like, Oh, if you're trying to sleep, just sleep. If you're trying to meditate, just meditate. If you're in this podcast, just do the podcast. If you're, you know, like mindfulness has been a great piece. And yes, I had it through martial arts and all that, but we live in this colonial kind of westernized society where there's sometimes this push to do, 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 right? Where I think that rub for me, the challenge has been like balancing that with being, but just being. Uh, every time I'm reminded of it, like my body knows it's like, yeah, that's right. Right. So that's been fantastic. And the last thing was, and it's connected to what I just said. The other challenge was when I was early days positional leader, uh, like in high school and as a student trustee, and I was like representing the Southwestern Francophone public schools students. I think I approached leadership as mainly, if I used to use the body analogy, head and hands. Like for me, it was like, if you have the knowledge and you know what to do, then you're a good leader. I communicated to people like that. Well, we have to do it because of this. And here's how you do it. Here's the why. And here's the how you do it. And then in my mind, it's like, then everybody should just be on board. It just makes sense. It's rational. And here's how to do it right? Let's improve this system for Francophone students. And here's how you do it. But uh, through that one year experience, I love that I had that one year experience before going into, into university, before becoming a professional in the field, because I quickly learned that leadership is equally and even more importantly about the heart and spirit. <laughs> the heart being believing and acknowledging that humans, we are humans are, are emotional beings, that making sense of things is actually through perception. I'm a bit of a constructivist in nature too. And spirit, like connectedness and purpose, connectedness to our world, connectedness to others, even others we're not in the room with. And so I try to lead now intentionally through heart, spirit, then head, then hands. So connect with the heart and spirit, engage the head, the why, and then, and then provide the hands with the tools to move forward. The challenge was, I thought it was only about heads and hands and I was losing people, right? And it wasn't working, right? I was burning out myself and then learning how to integrate the heart and spirit and even forefronting it. Oh, that was my next question. That was um, with your extensive leadership experiences. You know, I was going to ask, how do you become an effective leader? Right. And yeah. um, so what would you say um, is your strongest strength as a mm. leader? Ah, wow. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Strongest strength as a leader. So mm -hmm. I think uh, leadership requires mm -hmm. different 
skills in different situations, especially when it's combined with the discipline knowledge one might need in management. So for example, I think management or any job, I, I just said management because that's the kind of field I'm in, strategy management and administration of, of higher education. If I don't, so I think you need the, I do think you need a healthy level of vertical skills. I know we talk a lot about horizontal skills, soft skills, and that is super important. And I, and I, I focus on that. I will say that right now, but I just want us to take a minute to talk about the importance of vertical skills, uh, discipline, knowledge skills. I think it's important because I speak with a lot of students or just folks upcoming in the field who they have entry-level jobs. Like I did. I was the assistant of student affairs at the office like uh, in my first job in 2012. I came with certain soft skills like interpersonal skills, active listening skills, things like that. But I aimed to be the best filer if I had to file. I aimed to be the best data, data what you, entry person, like literally entering data into spreadsheets that I can be. I aimed to clean the office so that the reception area was amazing for students to the best extent possible. I aimed to provide the best customer service and welcoming environment to students, to 300 students lining up to book a locker through me. You know what I mean? And I think that we sometimes underestimate the, the vertical skills. In those cases, it was customer service. It was data entry. It was attention to detail. It was processing reconciliations and payments. Those were not my, I didn't grow up being like, I want to do those things. But that was my job and I took it seriously. And so, so a sense of duty is really important. And then the vertical skills associated with your job. So if I was an accountant, then learning all the things to be an accountant, okay? And, right, so, so there's that. Now I want to talk about the horizontal, soft, and I say soft, quote unquote, because I actually think they are highly important, the relational skills. I think a strength I bring is the ability to create space either in with individuals or communities to be themselves. I, I, and when I talked about the importance of leadership, creating conditions for more leaders, it's highly relational. For me, it's ensuring that folks can have enough psychological safety in a place that requires brave, bravery uh, to, to be authentic. Because when we're feeling more safe to be authentic, we can then take the necessary risks that learning requires to grow. Now, I'm not saying that anybody in a room with me will feel comfortable to do so. It's all a process and we all mesh and jive differently, right? Okay. But uh, generally, that is a that a strength that shows up in my assessments and that people report. I also have this way of trying to balance conceptual. It may not be coming across in this podcast because I'm, I'm, I'm actually focusing a lot on conceptual, but in a, in a project or team environment, blending the concepts with the problem, like understanding the problem and then generating the plan towards solution. I feel like I'm constantly balancing the three. So what's the framework? What's the issue? What's the framework we're going to use? And then what's the plan to action? And, and so I think that's helpful uh, in leadership so that, because we all have a tendency towards one or the other, right? Like head, like the why or the heart, like the connectedness and spirit and, or the hands, the doing, you know, some of us are drivers, some of us are champions of ideas. I tend to be more of a champion of ideas, but I have great respect and learned so much about planning and project planning and agile planning because I want, because I focus on impact, uh-huh. right? So, so I'm not the best. I'm just saying that I think one of the strengths I bring is that is, is being able to balance between the, the head, heart, hands, or the doing, being, um, thinking. Yeah. So to be like uh, an effective leader, as you said, you're 
naturally, I guess, more of like a champion. Mm-hmm. And do you think like most leaders are like more of like a champion instead of like a doer or like um, what was the other one you said? Uh, yeah, you could be like a champion, a driver, a driver uh, you could be yeah. um, like a heart bait, like a coach, you could be more of a coach. And then you could also be like more of a like, like a visionary, you know, you just you have these amazing ideas all the time. I think actually, there's research on this, and I just don't want to misquote them. I believe when you look at CEOs, they tend to skew towards the visionary, the ideas. Visionary, okay. Yeah, they do. Now that doesn't mean it's the right thing. It just means like there's a over there could be a rep- over representation and there's many reasons for that. Just like for example, if you were to look at CEOs, they're overly balanced towards males, and just because that's true doesn't mean it's right, and it isn't, right? Yes. So same thing. I, that's what I'd say about visionaries. I would say that with every strength, skill, strength, there are risks and liabilities, and for me, diversity is the key. I think that, and that's why I present my attempts to balance between the three. I skew towards champion, which is a combination of coach and visionary. But I, I try to balance that. But it, when I build a team, I look for the diversity. I look for the visionary. I look for the driver. I look for the coach. I look for the champion. I look for the, you know, all that. So diversity is, is, is important. And, and humbleness, right? So if you know you skew towards visionary or coach, then my question is, how are you honoring those strengths, using them, uh, but also keeping yourself in check? Mm-hmm. So I know that my week, uh, one of the things I don't like is I like the planning, but I may not know the details, the details of the procedures of doing. So I ensure that I ask the right questions, that I bring in the right people. And if I don't have the people or resources to do it, then I have to check myself and be like, is this a right, is this a right expectation to have on the team if none of us have these certain skill sets, mm-hmm. vertical skill sets to implement? Because then you create stress and overwhelm as well. Without you need to look at different things, right? Um, is that helpful? Yeah, very yeah, helpful. Very much. Yeah. Uh, you you wear like so many hats. You you're involved in so many activities. Even just just being like the dean of students, there are like so many things that that fall under your umbrella. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you're also part of like the anti-black tax force uh, here, racism tax force here at Centennial College. You also have your own podcast show. You teach martial art classes. Like, tell us how do you manage your time like we all get the same 24 hours but like how are you managing yourself and like how do you prevent like burnouts how do you do it how do you do like all of that thing i think from a a, a more thanks for that question spiritual uh play, place i think alignment is important so aligning myself and realizing that we change and i think that's the whenever i've i've, I've encountered burnout or exhaustion it's less because i wasn't managing my time properly but it's more because like I didn't realize I either I I've changed my interests or purpose, you know. And so you know how sometimes you could spend ten hours on something you love and it it feels energizing, or you could spend some t- ten hours on something that's really draining you and has a different impact. Now sometimes we do have to do stuff we don't like, and I'm cool with that. But I'm just talking about the places where we have choice, right? And the things you're naming are like the job I chose, the coaching I do. These are choices I have. Uh, so number one is to for me is I keep a journal and I, a huge skill for leaders, I think is self-awareness, right? And constantly um, checking in with how we're feeling, how we're doing and the alignment between our goals, interests, values, people, the things we're consuming. So that's one, uh, the, the activities you named, they all align with my, my, where I'm at currently in my life. I'll give you an example. I actually recently stopped my PhD, you know, in, in education, higher education. So I stopped that recently. Is it because I can't make time for it? Is it because I just don't like it? 
No, it's because I realize that it's no longer in service of who I'm becoming and the alignment. In fact, there's an opportunity cost to everything. And that's part of realizing that I'm not a machine who could just unlimitedly do things. So I was realizing that the, t- the 15 to 20 hours I'd put on my PhD each week, I could put into things that serve my community and serve myself better, whether that's watching an hour of Netflix or doing an hour of teaching martial arts or um, attending an event as Dean of Students, meeting with you, right? Things like that. So I did that calculation and it was only through, honestly, the year of reflection, almost a year. It was like eight months of reflection to understand that, hmm, it is, I'm okay. This is a good choice to adopt the PhD. So doing that analysis. And that wasn't easy. That wasn't easy because like, you know, for me, initially it felt like giving up something. No, no. On the hands front, time management, I do a lot of like, you can call them hacks, uh, stuff like that. Like I have my morning routine that I entered for me, time management is more about energy management. Okay. So it's, it's, it's how I eat, how I sleep, how I operate in the world, the gratitude I express to provide myself with the energy to, to do the things I want to do. And it looks different every day. And, and so that it requires a mindfulness. Uh, so yes, I'll do the time management stuff, like uh, getting things done by David Allen to an extent, but more important for me is tracking my energy levels um, and aligning the right energy for the right time of day for the right task. So I'll give you another example in the morning is I'm more creative in the afternoon. So in the morning, I'm more, I'm more focused and I'm more creative. So I might do those like deeper dive tasks, like writing a business case in the early morning, in the afternoon, I might be better uh, in, in an interactive element with colleagues. Mm-hmm. So, so I will, I will learn to match the task or activity with my schedule, wh- wherever I can control it. As you can imagine, sometimes like your schedule just gets packed, <laughs> but yeah, it goes back to knowing oneself and then applying oneself wh- where there's an alignment between energy, time, and, and, and things like that. I, I think some, uh, maybe, maybe my answer is also focusing on like interests and passions, but there are also a lot of times when uh, I feel I've done stuff that I don't enjoy, but I either, but I learn from. You know, and I think it's really important for leaders to stay curious, not to judge. And, mm-hmm. and we know neurologically and biologically that we are more creative, more productive when we have a spirit of curiosity, like, oh, asking questions like, oh, how, how might this take place? Even the science of grit, Angela Duckworth, she says for parents, she recommended to kid, uh, like if kids start like a new activity, canoeing or whatever, mm-hmm. that just because it's uncomfortable for the first two weeks doesn't mean that you should drop it. She recommends sticking with it for one year. And then, then you can talk right now you might debate that, but I personally believe in that kind of thing. I think that sure. If it's, if it's really not serving you and it's clear and it's detrimental, if it's harmful, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do it for a year. Sure. But there are times when we're exposed to new situations that are not easy. And that's where we stand to learn the most lessons and grow. In my opinion, it's case by case, but that's just a general thing that I believe in. It's good you said that because most of your experiences, like the stories you're sharing, you're sharing from like your perspective and like how you, the things you learned about yourself and that keep you motivated mm-hmm. to like being and staying like in position of like leadership. Like, you know yourself, you know, like why you can manage, why you can handle, you know, where you need to like um, get more experience in and then you go for like the things you want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's and good. I, yeah, thank you. And I think I should I also want to share that um, my journey wasn't the result of hardcore planning. My journey was a result of doing the things where my skills 
uh, aligned with the impact that a community needed. Mm -hmm. And so some people ask me about network networking tips. And, and I generally start by saying the conventional networking tip is uh, it's about who you know. Yes. But I like to say it's actually about, because I didn't know anybody <laughs> growing up. I didn't have like a network uh, uh, I, I, at first, right? I say it's about, so I didn't relate to that advice, right? Like I didn't, I didn't have like these people on speed dial <laughs> or parents who could connect me with such and such opportunities. I, I say it's about people who know you as a result of the work and impact you have and the way you make people feel. So in other words, if you do good work and have impact, this was what I was saying to myself, okay? And what I share with in certain cases, then people will notice and be grateful and want to work with you. People are gravitated toward working with people who get great things done together. People, you, a crude way of saying is people work with people they like <laughs> or, or can benefit from. So I think in a lot of my journey, it's been people reaching out to me to be like, hey, what do you think about applying for this? Or what do you think about doing this project? Versus me being like, it's in my plan to be Dean of Students. I'm going to go do this, right? It wasn't like that, actually. There were potentially one or two jobs where I was like, I want to do this. So I'm going to apply. And in some cases, I didn't even get it. I think it's a bit of luck. It's the definition of luck that I like, where it's uh, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So speaking of being liked and being asked to be part of like a project uh, and things like that, uh, I heard you were nominated to be part of the anti-Black racism tax force here at centennial mm -hmm. is that true and can you tell us more about that yeah so that one was uh um when i was hired onto dean's in to be the dean of students the task force had already been created about uh two months in i think so they created in december and i joined in february so uh, i and and they had done so much amazing work, they already had draft recommendations. And so I joined stellar co-chairs, Yasmin Razak and Veronique Henry. And I joined as the Dean of Students. So my, I joined because of my role. Like, so I was asked, it was already in, in, I knew in the interview process that one of my functions would be to co-chair this task force for um, my responsibility for student affairs and student experiences and outcomes. So, and, and the task force was created against the backdrop of, as you know, social unrest following George Floyd's murder in May, 2020, and, and really as a, as a response uh, uh, to, uh, against police brutality and racialized inequities, particularly for black communities and members of the African diaspora. So the task force's purpose was to develop a set of actionable recommendations, right? To, to transform and then to decolonize the work of the institution. It was made up of 60 students, faculty, staff. So my role was to support that task force and really to learn, because I saw myself as certainly like a guest because actually I didn't come in as co-chair yet. I actually intentionally, and I spoke with my fellow co-chairs, I came in as a Dean of Students advisor and then became co-chair when Yasmin moved on to a different institution. Uh, and then Michael Charles, who's our AVP of, um, uh, he's got a new title, that new title now. I don't want to make a mistake. We can put it in the show notes. Michael Charles though came in as AVP and co-chair of the task force. And then I, so that's when I became co-chair. So a few months in, but that for those first few months where I wasn't the co-chair were, were, were really important because I wanted to understand where each individual of the task force was coming from. So I joined their working groups along with different recommendations. And we had, and I was brought into really vulnerable conversations about inequities, about institutional recommendations that were being formed. And so my role, again, was to kind of what I brought up earlier is to create that space for truth to be told and to translate into recommendations and then to then champion 
using the word champion, those recommendations to the executive team and board of governors who were so supportive. They, you know, and our president, Craig Stevenson, huge champion of, of and enabled this work. So I would say, you know, then bring those recommendations forward to the board for approval and to commitments along with my co-chairs on behalf of the task force. And so, uh, yeah, we, we just celebrated a, a big milestone where the recommendations were, were approved as commitments, institutional commitments uh, along seven, seven kind of sections and 47 actions, 47 actions. Yeah. Uh, any advice, recommendations, anything you want to say to encourage future leaders? It's challenging times, right? With inflation and with political and uh, socioeconomic divides. And that's where I go back to Robin Sharma's wisdom of creating spaces and places to stay inspired personally and in community, uh, because we can't let these bring us down. We have to recognize them. We have to recognize them, acknowledge them so that we can address them and take care of ourselves and, and collective as we can. And uh, so that's the first thing, staying inspired and, and filling one's cup with that energy, what the energy required to do one's best craft. So the second one is to perfect your craft, right? Whatever that craft is. I didn't talk about it much, but as a martial artist, like we, we do this a lot. Like there's like a Bruce Lee poster behind me right now. It says, knowing is not enough, one must apply. And willing is not enough, we must do. Wow. And that connects to what I was saying earlier, like knowledge yes. is inert, it doesn't do anything unless you have an impact. So knowing is not enough, one must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. So that's kind of my, my advice is take care of self and community, focus on solving problems and, and exploring opportunities by perfecting one's craft in relationship with others. I have to emphasize that. Like it's, it's we, we don't work onto, we work with. And when we talk about problems and opportunities, ask yourself to whom and with whom. We're social beings and the problems that we are and opportunities that we're that the world needs to explore are complex ones and no one person no and that, and that goes back to the diversity idea i think the leaders of today and tomorrow are the ones who can operate in with diverse perspectives even if it offends you even if it you know is uncomfortable we need to be able to work across boundaries uh, create bridges to acknowledge the truth and work towards you know humanity <laughs> to a humanity that is connected um, and my sphere is student affairs right now and the little things I do, but your sphere will be different. Whether, whether it's, you know, whatever your sphere of is, start there. Great advice. Yeah, that's a wonderful advice. Perfecting on our crafts is what we try to do every day as a student. And um, mm -hmm. thank you for sharing with us your journey and your personal uh, journey, as well as your professional journey into leadership. Um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Jackie and Mabrat, uh, uh, for taking the time to, for, to craft these thoughtful questions and um, I look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you for joining us for episode five of the Leadership Vibe podcast. In the next episode, we are coming back with our guest, Ajane Adams, to hear about his leadership journey and what that looks like as a student. Make sure to subscribe to the Centennial College Podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify.